Welcome to Towards a Smarter World. This is your host, Cruz Saunders, and I'm pleased to be joined today by Kate Kenyon, a content leader and enterprise executive, currently head of content at Chase Consumer Bank. She specializes in enterprise-level content operations, content architecture, modeling, team setup, processes, governance. It's all the gnarly, sticky bits of content strategy, but she finds them oddly satisfying. She is active in the London content strategy community and speaks at content events across the world. Kate, thank you so much for joining here. It's so nice to see you. I'm really glad we could connect because this world of content has been really evolving over the last couple of years, especially as people are readjusting to uh, needing to get content moved to lots of places in real time, often from home offices. And their teams are being reorganized around content production that requires a lot of operations. And that's an area you know a lot about, how to get content from place to place and out to consumer experiences in an organized, orchestrated way. That is something very interesting to our listeners. And I love for you to just share some of the projects that you've been focusing on recently. What are some of the areas you've been noodling around as you touch on UX writing and localization and modeling and headless and APIs and all of the other things you touch during your day? It has been a wild couple of years, hasn't it? Yes, I think I've had maybe the strangest couple of years of my professional career lately, partly because I joined Chase in the very first week of lockdown here in the UK. So literally the very end of March 2020, a new job in almost Greenfield site to give you some like backstory on this. So Chase, as I'm sure you know, is a huge institution in the US, but actually unknown in the UK. This was Chase's first consumer bank operations outside of the US. And I had a completely greenfield site. I had an empty CMS, unstructured, nothing in it, no ideas how to get content into it, out of it, no quality control, no idea about how we were going to move things across platforms. So yeah, doing all of that from home was, it's been an adventure, shall we say. A lot of the things I've been working on have been around well, starting really with governance, I think actually a lot of people rush, particularly in operations, rush to the, well, how do we do this rather than what should we be doing? Like what is good enough? Often when we're talking about some of the other more sort of uh, knowledge management ends of the world, good enough has quite clear standards, interoperability standards. I'm sure you know about these things more, more better than I do. When you're talking about the kind of content that I handle, which is mostly marketing or the app, I mean, Chase in the UK is an app-only bank. So there isn't that sort of huge demand for content to be interoperable, movable. You have to establish that from the beginning, and that looks at what is good enough. So actually, a lot of my time at the beginning was really looking at what does good enough look like? How do we set up good enough? How do we know if we're even actually meeting that standard before we started production? Because if you know that standard, then actually setting up production becomes a mechanism to enact that standard. You know, if you know where you're going, then the rest of it is how you get there. So we started there, really, which I think was unusual and I think quite a privileged position. Often I have to fight to get there. One of the nice things about Chase was that when I came in, the um, content was not part of marketing or part of product, but it was its own thing. It was already considered by the bank to be valuable enough to customers that. It was its own thing that um, it needed its own special consideration. That's a terrific surprise. I mean, I a lot know. of organizations are still working to cross that chasm from seeing 
yeah. content as an after effect to a product and a valuable asset itself. It's definitely my top tip if anybody is looking for a new job in this year is to ask where content sits within an organization because it will tell you immediately whether this is somewhere that you might be happy working. Yeah, and, and that shift is happening slowly but surely to content being its own function. It's been a theme recently in a lot of conversations. Um, and it's sponsored very differently. It's tough because content is the basis for every customer experience in every place. It's so omnipresent in so many places that it becomes invisible, like the water we mm -hmm. swim in. If you're a fish, you don't know the water's there because it's everywhere. And I think enterprises have that challenge. Um, have you had to describe the value of content in, in your career? And, and how do you, how do you, how do you find yourself uh, describing why it's so valuable? Well, nobody misses oxygen until they don't have any, do they? So <laughs> I think it is actually the best results I have ever had have actually been from being tough from removing that oxygen would not sound too brutal, but you can spend a lot of time arguing and making the case for the value of content and the return on investment, how it contributes to your internal run rates and so on. But they don't necessarily convince people. I'll be really honest. I've had better results from saying to people, well, you have five designers on your team and only one content strategist or UX writer. So they're only going to work on one project. And then when other people start to see how well that project does because of that person's presence, and they start to see the impact on the other people on that team of that person's absence, then you start to get traction. It sounds harsh. Maybe it is. Maybe I'm a terrible person. It's I'm not effective. sure. <laughs> it's effective. It's real effective. Yeah. Yes. I'm indebted to Jonathan Coleman for teaching me that lesson. His was very much um, somebody who I worked with years ago, but he is very much an exponent of go where the value is, where you can add value. And if people aren't seeing that, then take your value elsewhere, take it where it is going to work. And um, that has been the, my best way, I think, of actually showing the value that content brings. So speaking of Jonathan, I'm curious about the evolution of content strategy as a mm -hmm. category. You know, a lot of us in the industry have seen the practice of content strategy stretched and contorted in lots of different ways. And now it seems like departments, um, like we've seen at Facebook and Shopify, they're recasting themselves as content design teams. And content strategy, which is, used to be a very broad umbrella, has really has bifurcated into multiple disciplines, it seems, with a different sort of focus. I'm curious your take, uh, if you could reflect on the role of the practice of content strategy and its evolution. Yes, I think it's, I mean, I'm old enough to remember this. When I first started, I did call myself a content strategist. And it, yes, it was a very broad church. It covered everything from the what should we make to how should we make it to is it any good and right back round again, really. I think if you look at parallel disciplines like UX and design as well, you would see that with industrialization, with the increase in the sheer demand for our skills comes specialization. I don't necessarily see the lack of specialization as being a dilution of the content strategy ethos, like the idea that content is a thing that needs to be valued and managed. But I think people are increasingly knowing where they can and how they can add that value as part of the overall rather than trying to be the sum of all parts, I suppose. Mm. So, so specialization is a sign of maturity. I think so. I mean, maybe other people would other argue otherwise, but I certainly I see within 
design that, and Andy Budd wrote something about it, from Clear Left wrote something about this quite recently, saying that the UX generalist is almost obsolete, effectively, that some being someone, you either go into management and start managing people who are specialists to help them guide their careers, or you're going to struggle. And I think content strategy, similarly, is such a huge thing now that maybe one person can't have all those skills. Right. I certainly, I started out in writing, but I've done UX writing. I've done these things. Did I do them brilliantly? I don't think so. Yeah. I know what I do well, and I've come to peace with the idea that I can't be everything that's covered within content strategy anymore. We started working with organizations on this idea of a content services organization, mm -hmm. which is independent of departments, and it's able to constitute at least content strategy, content engineering, and content operations, which we kind of divide out. I love that idea. Yeah. Yes. And that it's responsible for the cross-functional standards and orchestration models for the content supply chain, which really transcends really even technology and departments. And it's more about the models and the standards by which content and customer experiences are created. And it acts as, as an empowerment vehicle and orchestration function within the content producing departments. Have you seen that kind of model playing out in the market yet? Not in those formal terms, but what you're describing is something I recognize from what we have built at Chase. Oh, wow. Certainly, I don't look after anything to do with UX writing. I have a peer. I have someone who's, who leads that part of the work that we do. But we work hand in hand because how things are written is affected by how they are structured and vice versa. So what you're describing and the technology piece that comes into that as well. I work very closely with my MarTech colleagues and we are a content services structure. I'm not sure we would we put that label on it, but when you describe it, I'm like, yeah, I, I think I know what that looks like now. But it's recent. It's come about in the last couple of years. I don't think I've seen it very much in other organizations. It's starting. It's starting. It's it, a minority, but there's more and more organizations realizing that putting content into one silo and depending on copy paste and ad hoc systems to get customer experience yeah. to stitch together across platforms is just not super functional. Somebody needs to pay attention mm -hmm. to it. And ideally that somebody needs to be empowered to create common methodology process and, and even things like tags. Yeah. Tagging things and met yeah. metadata structures for and assets and all of that, you know, need to be shared. I'm curious about the evolution of technology vis-a-vis -vis con the content models you produce, because mm. I understand you work a lot with modeling. I do, yeah. Yeah. So I'd love to hear kind of your reflection on the relationship between the content models you produce and the technology that employs them. Oh, okay. I will try not to get too excited talking about content models, although they are kind of my favorite pet nerdy thing. Um, <laughs> Yay! This is going to be fun. I am in the right place here. <laughs> yes, you are. Um, okay. So as I said, my content is my content. The content is, although I am very attached to it, is mostly marketing or product content. So it sits within the app. There's a little bit of FAQ stuff, not very much, but a lot of people would look at that and go, well, yeah, but why do you need a content model? Because it's only in one language. It's mostly only one, maybe two platforms. Where's the benefit? You know, most people talk about modeling as being a benefit for knowledge management, for structures, for multiple languages, so on. But actually, we found that just even using 
modeling has separated over a traditional CMS, has separated out the content from the presentation layer so that we have a much more responsive approach to design, certainly within the website. So that simple change alone was where we started. But one unexpected like benefit, I think, from the content models is the portability of content and introducing that to a business. If they've never seen it before, they don't know what it feels like to watch it magically turn up on two different screens in two different formats. It's amazing to watch when the light goes on in people's heads. And using structured content models for something like app content is something that we're really looking at. And I'm very interested and excited to look at because honest to God, App content management is atrocious. It's just really hard and badly done. Either content isn't separated out from the code at all, or it's in content strings, which isn't necessarily an agile format that allows you've got a JSON file, basically. It's not ideal for moving content about the place, even a nested one. And one of the major problems that apps have is app bloat, like the actual weight of your app. It can be massive. And that's if you have multiple language files or if you have to include things like, uh, say your app has offers in it, for example. You have to include every single offer that a customer might click on. That's like a lot of like latent content, redundant content. Who knows? Sat in your app, taking up space, all of it having to be included at build time. So, you know, you have to coordinate your app releases with your content updates. It's messy, it's slow, it's juddery. It doesn't allow for content to like, be changed on the fly. Moving that, where you have a repeatable structure in the app, move that content into a content management system with people who want to manage that content as well. Developers hate managing content. That is not what they go to work for. So anything where you can abstract that away and put that content out into, even if it still stays in a JSON model, if you can query against it, an API, it means that suddenly your app is a lot lighter. You can serve language sets more quickly and you can sort serve them at runtime. You don't have to include it in the app at build time. So that kind of approach to app content is not something I've seen a lot before, but it's a really fun and yes, okay, I'm going to say fun and cool. I find it a really interesting way of using content models in a way that I haven't seen before. And to the second part of your question, I don't think it matters what system you put it in. It's the content model that matters. Whether you use a traditional CMS that you've somehow hacked to be able to do this kind of model or whether you use something native that's natively headless, as long as people can use it, as long as your authors are able to understand the models, extend the models, that's the value. It's not the system that it's kept in, for me anyway. So it's the model first approach that I'm hearing, which is for build me, the yeah. model and the technology yeah. maps to the model. And that is a different mindset. I'm glad to see you put that into practice. Um, it is sometimes challenging to educate others, especially in IT, who are used to having a content model be like a one-time spec or, you know, a schema. No. So, how do you, how, yeah, how do you, how do you talk to IT about it and how do you turn it into an ongoing process? I think I always borrow from other domains. Like I stand on the shoulders of giants whenever I can. And certainly data modeling is something where I am not a data modeler, but I understand how it works. And they would be the first to tell you it's not all ever a once and done thing. This is what we have to date based on customer demand. Should we need to find a new piece of data? Should we need to extend a topic or whatever? Yeah, we'll do that. So I'm always impressed that 
this is a snapshot in time of the content that we think we need and how we think we're going to have to present that. Models change. So whatever you do, don't don't build it in a way that makes it hard for either a developer or an author, preferably an author, to adapt a model. Got it. So it's really talking with IT about the fungibility of it all, the, the changeability, the mutability of the content yes. that its structure itself may evolve. And can... Yeah, it's the mutability of the structure, I think, that yeah. people need to understand that this is a container for content, but it's not a rigid container. It's the, what we know at the moment, if you like. Yeah. And for somebody in business that doesn't understand what a model is, they say, you're spending all this mm-hmm. time talking about this invisible thing I can't see. How can you help them understand? Think about an executive sponsor who's dealing with content as part of a bigger portfolio. This is going to make you laugh. This is how I explain it to people is <laughs> I talk about putting content on the shelves in Tesco's. Tesco is a large retailer here. But effectively, rather than delivering a packaged three-course meal, I'm like, no, we just put the ingredients on the shelves and then we let people come along and pick off the bits that they want. Our job is to make sure that the right things are on the shelves. I don't know why, but that analogy seems to work. I don't ever show models. Once somebody once told me, Kate, I find your spreadsheets disturbing. And um, I was kind of a flattered, but at the same time, <laughs> I was like, okay, never show your working out unless people genuinely ask. Yeah, we do the work, but as far as I am concerned, what I say is that I provision content. I make content available. I make it available in, in a way that is easily accessible by all platforms so that they can take what they need and present it to customers. And that basically does it for anybody who's not like IT compliant. Like curious. Okay, that's super huge. I, I love mean, it. I wish I, I could say there was it like a, it is really simple. Yeah. But that seems to be enough. Yeah. Like that I'm just stocking the shelves at Tesco's with all this content. You could come along and pick it up and it's all ingredients in whatever recipe you want to make. Yeah, and that goes along with the move to headless and and content as a service mm-hmm. based APIs. It seems like there is no technology platform that hasn't gotten on board. And that wasn't the case when we were first talking about this stuff years ago. We, I mean, we had to really advocate hard for content as a service. And now the whole industry has moved towards content APIs. And that's good because it, I think that will ultimately address this app content management challenge that you've described and some of the other future scenarios that are coming around for content in these three-dimensional worlds and all of that that are emerging, right? Where where now our content has to be more and more interactive to a customer's very specific contextual environment. And as they're dealing in a three-dimensional avatar-based world, eventually, you know, as part of the digital twin we seem to be building with this metaverse and there's all of these blockchain-based content. You're scaring me now. <laughs> oh, but it's, it's all of that stuff. I mean, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, I remember we were talking about in the future, we're going to be dealing with app-based content. In the future, we're going to be dealing with voice content. In the future, we're going to have much more than just a website. And here we are, that future's here, and now it's proliferating even more. And that presents some opportunities. Uh, you know, when organizations are looking at that landscape, how would you advise they break down that big problem of creating these personalized omnichannel sort of experiences across platforms into manageable pieces? What are the themes you think are the most important for executives to consider? I think I can only go from my own experience and having worked in quite a lot of regulated industries, so pharma, 
medical banking. There are some complexities there that perhaps don't exist in other places. There are always going to be companies that they that they look to. I know my execs look to people doing like the small, the, the, the fast, the cutting edge, bleeding edge things and go, I want one of those. Understanding the cost and the ongoing costs of doing these things is part of the education I think we have to do. It's, it's almost like it's actually twice the label price. It's the cost of actually doing it and the co- then the cost of running it on top. And then being very mindful that what we offer customers is offers value, that it isn't just adding on trinkets, for right. a better word. Yeah, I, I have to be really honest and say that an awful lot of these things that I see, like we read about, I think I'll be reading about them for another five years before I'm actually seeing them. Right. Truth be told, a lot of industries are still trying to get their apps good enough. Yeah. Let alone thinking about what this looks like and, and whether they can do transactions in the metaverse. Right, right. And wh- whether that would look like for personalization. Personalization, as we both know, is still pretty tricky to get right. Even the so, basic. Even the basics. Yeah. I wish I could say that there was stuff they should be considering, but I think I have to say that some of the basics are still not done that well. And I would also have to put my hands up and say that this isn't my specialist area. And I think this just goes back to what we said at the beginning, which is that content strategy has become so much more mature and diverse. Yeah. I do know people who have retrained as they work specifically in AI and conversational interfaces. And that has become a niche. That has become a thing where they really have focused on what does it look like to do content within augmented reality spaces. I feel like my job now is to look for those people and say, what do you know? What can I understand from you? How do I help you get what you need in order to be able to do your job properly and do your job well? I'm not sure I could be the right person to actually advise executives on the future. Well, but that's very sage because the what is, it goes back to the definition of what is good enough. What is good enough to ship today? And how do we create content models? that have and processes that are flexible enough for today's customer experiences Mm -hmm. and can evolve in order to accommodate tomorrow's. Yeah. Well, governance isn't a once and done thing either. Right. I mean, you know, you start from a place of knowing what good enough is, but if things shift, then your governance needs to shift too. So I definitely agree with that. And, And the other part of that is that content is evolving in a way that allows us to look at some patterns that will play out in many forms. For example, intent response matching is something we have to do if we're just targeting offers Mm -hmm. to a given customer segment, not necessarily to an individual customer, just to people within this demographic that might want uh, a college loan versus one that might need a new house or an insurance product. It's being able to just take some basic information about the customer within the session and change out what promo appears in a slot and then managing that content so it's consistent across channels. So we're already dealing with intent taxonomies. We're already dealing with some sort of demographic or customer data tagging and tagging our content in order to match to that. And so that intent response matching gets more and more real time, more and more granular and takes on different shape but the organization is getting good at that. Yeah, capability. and that's, that's that is not an overnight thing. No, 
I think back to modeling and I've always said that content modeling is only, you only do it down to, to the level where it's useful to the business. So I wouldn't go down to a, the tiniest layer of, level of granularity right. and split things out into tiny, tiny pieces unless it was useful, unless it was needed. And um, I think the same applies for personalization in all metaverses and universes and beyond, really. <laughs> Yeah. So speaking of governance and, uh, you know, is it, are there any particularly impactful content operating practices that you've found are most useful and practical for teams to consider? I mean, I think generally content operations and governance practices, I could give you a set of questions that you can kind of work through. In fact, I, <laughs> I wrote a chapter for a new book that is coming out very soon, basically on content operations. And I wrote a chapter on it on content governance because it's kind of like, for me, the, the start of what do we feed through the sausage machine starts with the content governance. Like, should we even be making this thing is a question that I don't think gets off, asked often enough. Mm. Uh, often we, as content pros, are like, how can I make this bigger, better, faster, rather than should I even be making this in the first place? So I think if I were to give you a list of questions that I think all teams can use to work through, the first is obviously, is this good enough content? You know, what is our definition of good enough? And having the right people in the room to make that decision, and that is people who are producing the content on a day-to-day -day basis, plus customer insight, plus brand, but not people who are that far away from what it is to actually produce content. And good enough defined as? Yeah, good enough is a fairly unique thing to define. Yeah. You have to do it for your own company. What do you lead with? Is it going to be customer satisfying so that they can self-service, so that we reduce the number of calls that comes through? Is it brand defining so that we are unique in the market? Different people will have different inputs. So good enough is not one set thing. Once you know what good enough looks like, then you can start to codify that in terms of who needs to see this before it's signed off. When do we do sign off? What standards such as, I mean, within finance, obviously we have our own, the Financial Conduct Authority in the UK would say how financial promotions are written and presented, right? So there's certain like legal limitations, governance. exactly, that would influence your governance. But um, knowing what good enough is, is a very, very valuable, and there's another bit to it. Good enough is a good starting point. Getting people to buy into saying, yes, that's what we want and we're willing to do the hard work to get it is the second piece. It's actually getting senior management, they who live in the cloud above us all, to say, yep, that's what we want. Yep, that's what the standard we're working to. No, we won't accept less than that. And then when you have that, then you have the arc, well, you have the intent, you have an outcome and everything else you can work forward towards that outcome including codifying that into your architecture in content, your processes, and also your, your, your technical architecture as well. Where are your checks and balances? How much, what do you need in the way of monitoring, for example? Do executives need to get involved in the customer journey? I think it helps their empathy levels if they do see it, but I don't think they have to understand the nuts and bolts of it. They really just need to understand what good enough is looking like and how we're going to meet that. Okay. So the visual maps of customer journey are helpful to executives to consume. So. Yeah. And obviously not the models themselves, but any interaction with the other aspects of the invisible world of content, <laughs> right? The, the magic black box. The metadata, the, the tagging boxes, yeah. and semantics and structures. Not in my experience, Yeah, but that could be, I wouldn't say, I always say I'm speaking from my own use case of one my experience. But no, I haven't found that. There is always somebody who wants to know 
like a little bit more. But if I was presenting it, I always put that kind of thing in the, the appendix. Like, if you really want to know, then yeah, knock yourself out. Here's 50 pages of like how I got to this point. But uh, usually, no. It's the physics of the rocket taking off. They, yes. they just want to know they about the rocket. They just want to see, the ro is the rocket flying or not? Yeah. Yeah. Though sometimes getting all these pieces working together and orchestrated well together does seem like rocket science. I mean, <laughs> really, there's quite a bit of engineering involved and it's quite a bit of collaboration. It's like putting on a, a movie and, and uh, or something. You've got all these different characters uh, needing to work together, all these different roles and competencies, practices and disciplines. And there has to be some coherence in the way that that large group of people work together. As a leader, just a human leader, what have you found works to help to create organizational coherence and collaboration with content-aligned teams? I think having what well, there is a huge advantage in content being seen as valuable is the first thing. In order to make any of this work, I think you have to sow seeds where the ground is fertile. Unless content either is your product or is perceived as being a significant value add to your product, it is always going to be very hard to orchestrate all those people because simply other things are more important is the bitter truth of it as far as I'm concerned is that I've seen some really good, exactly the things you describe. I've seen this work really well in things like media and newspapers where content is the product. There is nothing else. That's why people are there. Similarly, that kind of thing in areas where like knowledge management, where you need self-service, where you, there is nothing but the, word, the written word that makes it easier to get the buy-in for that mm. because the content itself is seen as important. Having said that, if you don't have that luxury, if you are outside of these spaces where you are having to advocate for content, I usually start with engineers. As a content leader where I have had to gain buy-in, I have had, I would say I've had some success starting with content as a design tool and aligning. I mean, you basically have to find your allies. And you can either start with the visual aspect of content, which is aligning yourself with design and research and seeing that, you know, content is design, as we talked about before, content strategy breaking out and content design becoming more of a specific discipline is, I think, reflective of this. But at the same time, I have also had quite a lot of success from looking at this from a technology and engineering point of view of saying most engineers I've ever spoken they loathe inefficiency. They loathe waste, waste code, wasted time. Scale is something they, they understand and they want to get to. They will try and automate away anything that seems repetitive. So there's a lot of opportunity within content to get those kind of benefits. And I find that speaking to engineers and saying, I'm not going to ask you, I'm going to ask you for advice. I'm not going to ask you for money. I'm going to ask you for advice. And then when they are bought in, then it makes it a lot easier to get the money, mm. which is really what we're talking about here. I find that if you ask for money, they will give you advice. If you ask for advice, then they will give you money. <laughs> uh, so... Ask for advice. I guess I think I could probably boil that down to whether you ask for people from design first or whether you ask for your engineering people first, ask for advice. And then when people are like, you know what, we could make this better. We could make this better when we do this and that and the other. And then you've got a MarTech guy or an engineering guy who's going, oh yeah, this is very inefficient. We should change this. And design who are going, yeah, well, we could incorporate this into the design system. And you're like, yeah, now we're talking. In my experience, I've never been able to do it by myself. Yeah. Much as I find it awkward and uncomfortable to sometimes say to people, cannot do this by myself. I need help. 
I'd like your advice somehow seems to sit better than I need help. <laughs> right, right, right. So, maybe it's me, but I um, definitely have found that that has been my way forward. That's very practical. Yeah, it sounds like there's a couple of major themes. There's the theme of the new capabilities and the customer leading capacity that drives content content's value as a part of the product, as perceived as the thing that drives the business value. And then the other side is the cost and efficiency, the uh, speed to market, the reduction in waste, the making things happen better, faster in the content uh, production lifecycle. Both of those are levers yes. you've employed along with. Yeah. Advising. And I think it's probably, I think it's a, re a reflection of the values of the tribes of people that I have to work with. Like design is always more concerned, I find, with quality than they are with speed. And engineers, yes, quality of code is always important, but the scale and efficiency rarely strays, you know, very too far from the mind of engineers. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you've talked about design and engineering as a backdrop. I think that bridge requires a very specialized um, mind to help create because you've got to be able to think both designer mm -hmm. and think technologist. Interestingly, at least the way I see it, models have to incorporate both right? How things are going to be presented. So they have to be able to incorporate, oh, I need a title, like a feature promo thing. I need a, a space for the regulatory compliance language, you know, or whatever that it's got to be on the layout and, or, or there's some bit of metadata I need there for accessibility. So there's all these different things driving the model from a presentation and customer point of view. And then there's all this data stuff that is driving the model as well. So they seem to meet in the model. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah. Actually, content people, regardless of how you came to be a content person, many roads in, we're well, well placed to do that work. A lot of the work we do is understanding different people's points of view of being able to translate. We are like translators, international translators, if you like. I probably err more towards the engineering side of life than the design side of life, but I have learned to engage with my design peers and understand what makes them tick because it's important to me that I do understand those people because they impact my work and I impact theirs. So um, you don't have to pick a tribe, but you do have to be able to move between the two of them. And I think content people are generally very good at that. I love it. And the model becomes kind of a Rosetta Stone for that broker to mediate or the, you know, it's almost like, what do you call like an international deal broker between countries? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes. Like, yeah. Yes. One thing that's just popped through my mind as you were saying that was it stops being about content and starts being a blueprint for the thing we're going to build. Like, yes, it's a content model because it's arguably that words in, but when you have that input from design, from engineering as well, from data, then it becomes a collective pattern. It becomes something where everyone has got some sense of ownership and input. And it stops being about words, stops being about the choice of words, the copy, if you like. Yes. Because the engineers don't care about that. And neither do the design people. They really don't, like, neither of them want anything to do with the words, like in the choice of words and what verb do we put here. No one cares but the copywriters and the content people. If you can see, if you can separate out that from the model that sits underneath it, then suddenly people are, the word that springs to mind is blueprint. You're architecting a blueprint or something which design are going to be, in, you know, are going to be informed by that from the way that they present front ends, data know why they're doing what they're doing, why they're making these queries. And suddenly everyone's got a common place, if you like, to reference. 
I'm not there yet, I would say, but I'm damned if I would, I would really love to get to that place. That's yeah. definitely what I'm working towards. And you're well on the way. There's a lot of organizations not nearly as far along, and I'm wondering if you could help them with the how do you get started with modeling. So, you know, if <laughs> yeah. teams are just nosing around with the idea of content models, because most in most organizations, many we've worked with, they start out with accidental models. And there's models everywhere. It's just they don't know that they're models, right? They're just system schemas or they're yeah. sort of front-end wireframe boxes and arrows. There's other kinds of permutations of it, the CMS specification that's in a Google Doc or whatever, right? Like the, you know, so it's, it takes all these forms. How do you tell people who are just getting started and becoming aware that content models exist? This is a good way to to start the process? I would start with don't panic and you're going to get it wrong. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, if you can just embrace the idea that you're going to suck at this at first, then you'll be a lot better off. Models are not a once and done thing. You do come back to them, you revisit them, you revise them. They are temporary structures to hold a piece of thinking, if you like. So the process, my old boss and friend Cleve Gibbon used to say that he probably still does say it, but um, he used to say that the process of modeling is more important than the actual module that you come up with, because in the process of modeling, you understand the content that you have. You understand why it's there. What does it do? What does it need to do? Where is it deficient right now? So I would start with find a repeatable pattern. Like some easy ones are things like FAQs. They're usually easy to break down. Anything which has a structure, repeatable patterns are first and foremost the thing that model easily. Start with those. It is a progressive thing. There is degrees of headlessness. It's not an all in. You can be in, you can be out, you can be half in and half out if you like. You can just have some of your content modeled. Some of it will be just special and magic and you will never get it to fit into a model. So don't stress. Just start with the pieces that do seem to want to play, that do seem to want to structure themselves. And if you structure them into big blobs to start with, be okay with that. Because some structure is better than no structure. And I personally never model down beyond what a business thinks they will need for the next six to 12 months on the understanding that everything is a snapshot in time based on what we know. So I'll build you a model based on what you tell me for the next six to 12 months. I might make a couple of guesses, but if it's large and chunky and we don't know why, but we have no reason to break it, I'm going to leave it like that. I'm going to leave it like that until you come up with a reason why it needs to be broken down. And then it's easier to start with very broad models, make them progressively more granular than it is to build incredibly granular models and then leap directly to that on the understanding that you might reap the benefits in the future. Yeah. Okay. So what is the good enough <laughs> scope? Yeah, right. And absolutely. And what is the six month horizon? Right. Yeah. So it's so really? right. And then what that's the recipe for is making something that can ship because if we take on we the boiling of the ocean project, then eventually somebody gets tired of trying to boil the ocean and mm -hmm. says, this thing needs to go on a shelf until we have time. Yeah, it goes in, in the big round file or the bin, right, right. <laughs> you know, or somebody just marks it as just oh, too damn hard. Once it's, once it's got that label, mm, tricky. Yeah, you got to ship customer experiences in some form benefiting. Yes. I mean, I, I, as I say, I, I'm quite worked out how we're going to do this all for app content yet, but I know it's there and I know I can see the repeatable patterns. So I know I can industrialize this and I know I can make this scale.
when I first started looking at this, I tried slotting it into some of the existing models and went roughly fits but not elegantly there was enough diversity for me to want think no i need to remodel this i need to take this a, a different approach that happens a lot with models as i'm sure you know it's like it's not a once and done thing yeah models need to be able to pivot expand and contract they're more like graphs and less like grids really <laughs> yeah yeah so You've had a really interesting career touching a lot of parts of content and with a lot of depth over years, and it creates a wisdom. Are you calling me old? <laughs> I, I think both of us have. We're seasoned. We are se I think we aging they, like wine. They call right? they call us seasoned at this point. <laughs> they, but <laughs> but we've been in the industry long enough that we know that this there needs to be a next generation, mm -hmm. and that that process is not necessarily evident in terms of the educational system. And how are content professionals of the future? born and made now and how should they be you know what do you yeah. see is needed in the industry i think it's a really interesting question i was having this conversation with another content modeling friend the other day and we said where are the people i'm supposed to be teaching this to i can't keep doing this forever <laughs> i need some more to hand this to and i find it interesting that there's a lot of ux writing courses there are even there's the master's degree at grads of course which covers all of content strategy but content modeling takes practice it takes application it takes a certain mindset i guess i am not seeing that in the market i'm not seeing people with those skills and i'm not really seeing people teaching those skills either i mean i'm always like happy if everybody anybody listening wants like mentorship or like ideas of like me to give feedback. I am always happy to do that for people. But I have to say at the moment, I'm not seeing these people. I don't know where they are. I've seen a lot of writers and a lot of people who are coming into content management, but as authors who are learning rather than people who are looking to like define models, content engineering. That's so like a gap, I think. Yeah, it really is. There's an opportunity, I think, um, within our educational system to embrace the next generation of information professionals of, mm -hmm. of many stripes. But this area where content needs to be structured is a natural progression from other sort of sentence diagramming and grammaticals yeah. or skill sets that are taught that are really just need to be extrapolated into the future, right? Mm -hmm. which is the one we're living in, but the educational system hasn't caught up. And I think we need to come up with professional development approach within the industry somehow. Yeah. And career paths into it. Um, one of the I am teaching modeling at the moment to one of my colleagues, and she comes from an SEO background. Mm -hmm. And actually, she has that mind, that sort of technical, mathematical mindset that you need a little bit of. You don't have to be really good at maths yeah. to do what we do, but it helps. Anybody exposed to schema.org yes. understands models implicitly. Yes. Yeah. So I have found that, interestingly, people who have a background in SEO, technical mm -hmm. SEO, often make great modelers. But how do you get? How do you get from that point into it? How yeah. do you switch? That is something where the training really comes into its own. We've also trained a number of folks from the semantic side, from MLIS backgrounds mm -hmm. that have an experience in taxonomy design and management because they're, they actually have a faceted information mind already. So it's not a huge leap to understand structural modeling from semantic modeling. Those two things have to come together. The ability to understand the tagging systems, controlled vocabularies, the, the semantics yeah. that, that then get inherited to the model, which is a whole other conversation we won't have time for today. <laughs> 
But those worlds are certainly in progress and evolving very rapidly today towards knowledge graphs, I, I will add. It seems like there's a progressive evolution from basic tagging systems towards actual knowledge graphs yeah. and basic content models towards more graph-oriented models as yeah. well. And so that is going to be a very interesting movie to watch over the next <laughs> five years. And so when we meet again in another five years, we'll look back and, and see uh, what has unfolded in this incredible evolving world of content. Thank you so much, Kate, for joining today. Is there anything you'd like our audience to know before we wrap up today? Only that I am hiring right now. If you are in the UK, then please do come find me on LinkedIn because I have got openings for both UX writers and also content producers. We are very busy hiring and we will be for at least the next six months. So if any of this today has piqued your interest, then please do come find me. I love that we had a chance to talk about bringing the worlds together of both design and technology across departments, uh, content sets, technologies, and that beautiful role that content strategists and content leaders play in making the world a little smarter, one content set, one team at a time. Kate, you're making the world a smarter place. Thank you so much for joining. This episode of Towards a Smarter World is brought to you by A, the Content Intelligence Service. Learn more about intelligent customer experience powered by content strategy, engineering, and operations at simpleA.com.